It is, it is very good to be here today. And I was thinking when I was coming here, I was thinking, I love coming to church. I love coming here because you're a good-looking bunch of people. Not, not in the sense, don't get a big head and think that, you know, you're, this is a, an external thing, but because what I am actually saying is you're good to look at because by looking at you, it makes me feel good. There's a goodness that comes from being in the family of God that actually just oozes. And so when I turn up here, without me doing anything, I already feel a blessing because I'm among the good people of God. So when I come here this day, I was walking along, the sun was shining, always nice when the sun's shining, a sunny Sunday, nice. And I was thinking, I'm coming to a place where I know I'm going to encounter good people. That's you. And so I'm grateful to be here. It's exciting for me to come among God's people. If you're wondering about the flip chart, if Simon's disorganized, I'm doubly disorganized. So I haven't actually had a time to do a nice PowerPoint or anything like that. So I'm going to go a little bit old school and we're going to do it uh, on the flip chart. Hopefully you can see it. If you can't, uh, you can look later. So we've done, um, or been doing, this is our last day of 40 days of prayer. 40 days of prayer. And so now we're going to be looking at, as we end this 40 days of prayer, we now need to think about what next? How do we go on from here? What is God done among us and what is it causing us to now want to go and pursue? Some of you may be uh, aware of what would be described perhaps as an outpouring in a place in America, America called um, Asbury. And as I was thinking about these 40 days of prayers we've done, and as I'm reading the reports that are coming from this little town in America where there seems to be an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And if you haven't heard, uh, the story goes a bit like this. There was an ordinary chapel meeting where a sermon or a, was preached on the topic of confession and repentance. It went as it normally would go. It finished as it normally would finish. And everyone left, except for about a handful of young students who asked if they could stay and pray. And they stayed and they prayed. And the report goes three hours later, a thousand people had come back and filled the building. Let me read some of the reports. Some of you may have read this, but let me just read some of the reports about this. This is one of the leaders there. It says, It is clearly an outpouring of the Spirit, but beyond that, 
We are reticent to call it anything else. History can define it as it will. It is extraordinary and yet nothing new. Many of us have seen and experienced all that is happening here elsewhere, and yet none of us really have been in this kind of sustained move. The hunger is characterized by exuberant worship, empowered by the Spirit, led by students. No production whatsoever. No screens or words projected. Seemingly no song list. They sing until the Spirit seems to give another song. There is a lot of prayer being led all over the house. There are testimonies given throughout the day. It is the holy love of God rising like a tide and and rolling like waves. Jesus is the only celebrity here. No one even remotely considers the names of anyone in leadership here. They are not unseasoned, just unknown. Incredible humility characterizes this whole move and has been enormously disruptive to the school, but no one seems to care. Another report says this, There are no celebrity praise leaders. There were no famous names giving addresses. There was nothing for people to go there to other than the presence of God and what they felt God was doing. Another report. For those sceptical of hype, these meetings have been incredibly unsensational, non-emotional, no lights, smoke, or charismatic voices. On the contrary, this is humility, repentance, prayer, and sitting under the authority of Scripture. The altars are wet with the tears of hearts broken by the love of God. As I was thinking of these reports coming out, and mind you, they've been doing this now for almost two weeks straight, over a hundred hours straight of prayer. Now, if I said to you, we're doing a prayer, we're having a prayer meeting, and we're going to go for 120 hours, not many of you would, would, well, I, well, let me put it myself, I would not be looking forward to it. But here is a move of God, and over a hundred hours straight, This prayer meeting has been going on. Francis Schaeffer says this, Revival speaks of a life brought into proper relationship to the Holy Spirit. Here we see a move of God, and it seems like people are being shifted into a proper relationship with the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about this whole thing, and I don't know about you, but it's, it's quite nice hearing that God's doing something massive. It's quite nice to see that there is not only an outpouring of the Spirit, but there's, there's uh, signs and wonders, reports of healings, reports of many coming to Christ. And not only is it happening in Asbury, but it's actually spread to other parts of America now already. It's been picked up on the national news in America, CNN, Fox, all these big networks are reporting of this thing happening. And it's brilliant. It's amazing. It's great. And yet I ask, 
Why there? Why doesn't that happen here? Why does that break out there and we have done 40 days of prayer and we get what seems like nothing? How come just a few people praying for a few hours and all of a sudden there seems to be an outbreak of the Spirit of God and yet we pray and we seem to get nothing? And I thought about this, and often when you think, you have to think deeper than you often want to. You, you want to just leave the questions hanging as if it's God's job to answer them or God's job to sort it out. But as I thought more deeply about that question, why not here, the question that comes up is, why do I want it here? And me being vulnerable to you is because That would be easier for me. If revival broke broke out here, I wouldn't have to do so much, would I? Because we would just be sweeped away by the Spirit. Would I have to put so much effort in if all of a sudden there would just be multitudes coming in here? And I honestly can say that I would want revival because it would make my life easier. Not that I want it for any reason other than it would mean that I would not have to work quite as hard. And that concerns me. And I'm not saying this is you, but I'm, 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 I'm sharing my heart with you. My desire for revival here is because it would be easier. Who finds worship easier when you come here? Or when you're on your own in your room? Who finds it easier to focus on God when you're here or when you're in the workplace? Who finds it easier to be able to live a life that is giving glory to God and has the outward appearance of holiness when you're among the people of God or when you're not? It concerned me greatly that my heart response is I wanted a revival because it would make my life easier. I think revival requires less of me because obviously there's more of God. But this is wrong thinking. And this is not at all what it requires. I was listening to a a TED talk. And I don't know why I clicked on this, but the heading of this TED talk is Why the Majority is Always Wrong. Now, it intrigued me, and of course, that's what the heading's supposed to do, and it's supposed to make me click. And so I did. And there was a man talking in the context of innovation the majority is always wrong. And he said, what is the purpose of thinking? According to neuroscientists, what is the purpose of thinking? And their answer is the purpose of thinking is to stop thinking. 
Thinking is a very high-energy pursuit. To think requires a lot of you. And our body and our brain and our human conditioning is that we stop doing high-energy things as soon as possible. The purpose of thinking is so that it would stop and that you can go back into a default state. And this guy was saying that 97% of life is lived on autopilot. 97% of life is lived on autopilot. I experienced this on Saturday morning when I was going to a friend's house and my wife was driving me there. And as we're driving, we're coming to the turning. I'm like, my wife's talking to me and I to her. And I'm like, she'll turn off here. And straight on she goes. And as she passes, I'm like, I'm going that way. She goes, oh, you're not coming with me. I'll drop you off around the other way. Autopilot is so easy. How many times do that, does that happen to us? We get in a, a car and drive somewhere and we're like, this isn't where I was meant to go. I was going somewhere else. How often are we doing things where we're not really thinking about it? It's just that that's what we do. We've gone into autopilot and we're just completing it. 97% of life, according to neuroscientists, is lived on autopilot. What would be called normal mode for the brain. What would be known as your brain's normality. 97%. And this guy... His point was this, is that actually normality is autopilot. Following the cultural norms is being on nothing more than autopilot. And we had this word from Mike last year, I believe, that spoke of two fields that we had an opportunity to go into. I'm going to try and draw something now, so excuse my crude attempts. And we had an opportunity to go into two fields. And I pictured it, rightly or wrongly, like this. I pictured it as all of us here. And the opportunity for us was set before us of two fields. One of these fields was what was termed the normal or the ordinary or the way we'd been before. And we could go back into here and it would be good and we would be blessed, and we would receive good things from God. Or we could go in to the other field, the field of more. And in my head, I imagine these fields being the exact same. Same size, maybe the more field looked a bit greener, maybe it was a bit nicer but essentially the same size field. 
But after thinking about it a bit more, this is the opportunity we have. We have the field of the ordinary, the field of the normality, the field that we can do 97% of the time without even thinking. We can be in this field and it's okay. But in reality, the field that we're being offered to go into is this field. This field here that we're being offered to go into is far larger than we can imagine. We are constrained by many things in this field of normality. It doesn't require much of us. It doesn't require us to do that much work. We can do that. We can stay there. We're okay there. We're good there. But that's not what's on offer. And we're not even on offer. We talk about this sometimes, and I was thinking about this as well. We are sometimes offered the more. We call this the more. But the danger with that is we just say it's the more ordinary. More ordinary. But we're not after the more ordinary. We're after the extra ordinary. We're after the extraordinary. This field is normal. 97% of the time we're there. But that's not what's on offer. The field we're offered to come into is the one that 3% achieve. And when I think of revival, I think of revival in the context of I want to stay in normality. In fact, I want it to go to maybe 99% of me on autopilot and revival comes and it'll be easier. But what God's calling us to do is say, no, you need to step out of the normality, step out of what is known as norm and come into the extra, the extraordinary. Sounds good. Sounds like we want to go there. I want to go there. The question we all have is, how? How do we get from there to there? It's so easy being here. It's autopilot. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to do anything. I'm, 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 I'm comfortable there. How do we get to the extraordinary? And as I was thinking of this, I, I read an article on the London Underground. 160 years celebrating the London Underground. And the guy who proposed to do the Underground in the late 19th century, or earliest 19th century, sorry, his proposal was to help clean up the streets of London. London was being flooded by an influx of immigrants. There was carts and people and all kinds of obstructions on the streets above. And there were narrow streets. The buildings were there, not really movable. And so his proposal was, why don't we go underground to solve our transport issues? 
And so they built, they started to build the, build the underground and the guy who had the vision for it, Charles Pearson, died three months before he saw the first track open. And since then, the London Underground has expanded enormously. They say it, tr- it transports a 1.3 billion commuters a year. It travels 42 million miles in a year. To give that perspective, that's halfway to the sun from here. And as I was reflecting on this article of how a man had a vision to be able to clean up the streets of London by going underground, by making new paths that no one had seen or could even imagine, that were not in the natural eye of people there, that would actually require people to go where they couldn't see. Many scoffed at him. Many said, all that's going to be down there is rats and sewer. You're just going to cause people to get sick and ill. And yet now, now it it transports 1.3 billion commuters a year. And as I was reading this article, I almost felt God say to me in that moment, now sometimes you get these thoughts, and I don't know about you, it's a thought that comes and you're like, that doesn't, seem like my thought (laughs) I'm like where has this thought come from it's like it's been posted through and the thought that came to me was this before the mess on the surface can be changed the paths of righteousness underneath must be created before outward change the inward change must happen And in seeing this, I just all of a sudden had this picture of God of the underground. God of the underground who doesn't worry about what is on the surface so much, but is so concerned about the paths of righteousness that are underground, that are deep within us and in this church, that he wants us to get right. And there can be many things that hinder us from having these paths of righteousness being formed in our lives. And we've come to the end of 40 days, and for some of us, for me, it's been a bit of an up-and-down journey, sometimes engaging, engaging well, sometimes not. But where do we go from here? Let me read to you from... Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. As I read this, I thought, Joe, sometimes I do get to an end of a week or before a prayer meeting and thinking, I do feel like I've got drooping hands and weak knees 
But the scripture tells me, strengthen yourself. Lift your drooping hands. Make straight paths for your feet. There is a call for us to get out of the 97% normality and autopilot and to get going with the work God has for us. And it sounds to me as sometimes I'm like, how am I possibly going to lift up my drooping hands? They're drooping. They're hard enough for me to, to get up and go as it is. Is this in my own strength? Am I supposed to try and pull myself up by my own bootstraps? Psalm 25 tells us this. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. These paths that it says when your hands are drooping and your knees are feeling weak, when you feel lame and it says make the paths, get up, get going, these are paths that are already there. These are not paths you are making right then and there, but these are the paths that have been made because we've gone to the source of this all. And we say to God, make known your paths. How do we get from here to here? Make known your paths to me. Lead me in your truth and teach me. The psalm goes on further. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. What is this hard work we're being required to do? What is this thing that we've been crying to, told to do that allows us to stay on the paths of righteousness? Keep his commandments and his testimonies. Keep both the covenant and what he teaches us to do. How do we do that? It's not that difficult. It's reading the word and it's praying. Reading the word individually, praying individually. Reading the word corporately and praying corporately. Seems like hard work. It seems like I'm just telling you that you've just got to get on and do it. But this is not you doing it in your own strength. This is you coming to God. The psalmist goes on and he says this. Who is a man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, who makes known to them, he, make, he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. The friendship 
of the Lord is for those who fear him. This is how we get to go on the paths of righteousness. This is how we go from here to there, by knowing the friendship of the Lord. Uh, Another way to say this would be to know the secret counsel of the Lord. How do you know a secret? When you're younger and as a kid, I don't know why it is more as kids than anything else, but you like actually telling secrets when you're kids. Okay. I liked telling secrets when I was a kid. And it used to be I came from a big family, so to tell a secret, you'd have to get your brother and you'd have to get him away and you'd have to whisper in his ear. Friendship of God is like being told a secret. Friendship of, with God is like God saying, come, come, come here. I've got something to tell you. He calls us aside and he says, How do we get to the paths of righteousness? Friendship with God. Secret counsel with God. And this requires us to know God. And this requires us to read his word. And this requires us to know truth. And this requires us to pray together. It's not easy. We're called to do something that seems like it's a lot of effort. Romans 15.4 says this, For whatever was written in former days, that's the, the laws and the commands and these things of God that we are the truths of God, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We are called to endurance. We are not sprinters. Christians are not sprinters. Did you know that? We're not called to be fast. We're called to be long-distance runners. We're called to run the race to the end. We are called to a marathon, not a sprint. And as I reflect upon my desire for revival, I was just in the mode of, I want to sprint, I don't want to have to endure. But we are called to endure But through Scripture, so through reading the Word of God, through the Scripture that we have been given, we get encouragement to endure. Endurance comes through the reading of Scripture that encourages us. The next verse in Romans says this, May the God... I love this. May the God of endurance... Do you hear that? May the God of endurance, who are we to be like? Who are we called to become like? Like Jesus, 
And guess what Jesus is? He's a God of endurance. Guess what we need to do? We need to become a people of endurance to reflect God. May the God of endurance, and this is a critical bit, and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we endure? Why is this endurance? So that we may live in harmony and together, with one voice, glorify God. But why, why the endurance part? What is, why is there a requirement for us to, in, to have to work hard at this? Well, back in Hebrews 12, it says this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for discipline that you have to endure. What does that mean? For, it's not a, it's not a, it'd be nice if you did. This isn't God saying it would be beneficial if you just persevered to the end. This is God saying you must, you should, you have to endure. Why? God is treating you as sons. God is treating you as part of his family. Discipline is not a condemnation. Discipline is God saying, I am giving you the strength and the power, the ability to be able to endure. The strength and encouragement to endure. And how do we do this? We go back a few more verses that says this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So how do we not grow weary or faint-hearted? How do we pick up our drooping hands? How do we strengthen our weaking knees? How do we make straight paths of righteousness? Consider him. When we look to Christ... When we put him at the center, when we are not reading scripture because we have to endure, when we're not reading scripture because we have to say something, if we're not reading scripture because it's what we're expected to do, but we're reading it and we're praying and we're actually enduring because we consider him. Because we look to him and see he has done it before us. All these other things is, is becomes easier. Because we consider the one who has endured all for us. We look to him that we may not grow weary. Romans 16.25 says, To him who is able to strengthen you. When we consider him, our strength comes. When our strength comes, we can endure. When we endure, the paths of righteousness become clear and all of a sudden, we start moving from the normality into the extraordinary. 
1988, I was seven years old, the Queen, late Queen Elizabeth II, came and visited Australia. She came to the little town where we lived next to, called Albury, and she came and visited. And all the surrounding areas flocked in to see her. The Queen was coming to an insignificant town in Australia. And as the masses flocked, thousands upon thousands turned up to see a glimpse of this monarch of ours that had come to visit. We all gathered, and I remember my mum, so often like a, like a hen herding all of us to, to the place where we could sit and see the Queen. And there were so many people there, by the time we got there, we were hundreds of metres away from where the Queen actually was sitting. But we were just following the crowd and doing what everyone else was doing and getting as close as we can without pushing people out of the way or being bullish. And we, we got a place and we sat down. And as we sat down, Mum all of a sudden said, where is your youngest brother, Michael? Where is Michael? Now, my youngest brother, uh, when he was born, he... He only just made it, and my mum only just made it, and the story is, for three months after my brother was born, I didn't see my mother because she was in such a critical condition, and we lived with church family, but my mum survived and my brother survived, even though all medical advice is saying that they would both die, and out of this, I, I believe my parents chose to name my youngest brother after my dad, and so they named him Michael Lawrence. His full name, Michael Lawrence Holland Hood. And because my dad's name was Michael and my youngest brother's name was Michael, my mum could only ever refer to my brother as Michael Lawrence because if she didn't, dad would always answer. So when I was growing up, all I ever knew my brother to be called was Michael Lawrence. And he got called quite a bit. Michael Lawrence, Michael Lawrence. And so we knew the name. And here we are in a crowd of thousands. My youngest brother, only three or four years old, gone. My mum having to care for another five kids at the same time as the one that runs off. And he's the youngest. And just as my mum's going, where is he going? What am I going to do? Who am I going to get to look after these kids whilst I try to go look for my youngest? Over the loudspeaker comes this voice. Would the parents of Michael Lawrence come to the stage, please? And instantly my mum knew who they were talking about. She put one of my older siblings, I think, in charge. And off she went to collect my youngest brother. When she got him back and the question was asked, why did you walk away? Why did you run away? Why did you go up there when we were here? And he said, I thought we were going to see the Queen. I thought we were going to see the Queen. And as this little boy made a path through the multitude, 
through the normal way of sitting in rows and being orderly, and he made a path directly for the queen because that's what he was there for. This this is what paths of righteousness do. Paths of righteousness make a way directly to the monarch. It goes through the normalities of life. It goes through the crowds that would sit back and just be content with the 97% autopilot. And it would go. It says, I'm here for the king. I will go where he is. Paths of righteousness lead us to the king. But they don't just lead us to the king. You see, as the underground is being built in our lives, it's not just about us having that place to endure and being able to have the strength to carry on. That paths that lead us into the very presence of God, those paths that lead us to the king, there are also paths that lead others to come in to the kingdom. Only last week, these paths of righteousness led a, a couple who were honeymooning on the island. They had come here. The, uh, the wife had fallen away from her Christian faith, the husband being ag- agnostic. And they're travelling on the bus down the road. And the husband knew that in the past that the Christian faith had been important to his new wife. And as they passed this building, he says, why don't we go to that church? Interesting, why this one? Paths of righteousness call people when we don't even know it. See, the paths of righteousness are not just for our hearts, they're for those who are looking on as well. This couple saw the building, and then on the Sunday they came. They came into here and they sat just back there. As they sat and they listened, there was a time of prayer afterwards and and Greg was on the same row. Paths of righteousness. Who else would, would I rather sit next to a couple who have come in kind of seeking, maybe trying to find something and here we have a man who God has dedicated his life to calling in the lost. And as they sit on this row, Greg not knowing this, sits next to him and asks him some questions. And by the end of it, this lady has recommitted herself to Christ and is wanting to now pursue Christ afresh. The husband still being agnostic, but actually supportive, who actually said that he'll go along with his wife. What does 40 days of prayer produce? Paths of righteousness that lead to the king, not just in our lives, but in the lives of people who are looking in. And then they come in and they're drawn into this place. Forty days of prayer causes people to be renewed. And as Greg has said to me many times, he says, prayer works. Now work at prayer. Prayer works. It works when we pray. It works when we dedicate ourselves to hearing God. But we need to work at praying as well. 
To live in the Spirit, this is what we want. It's to make paths of righteousness that lead to the King. You see, when we're talking about living in the Spirit, do you know what we're actually saying for you to do? Make much of Christ. Make much of Christ. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? It means to make paths that lead us directly straight to the King of Kings. That's living in the Spirit. How do we do this? Encouragement of the Scripture. Considering Him who endured all, making paths, not caring about the crowds, not caring about the 97% autopilot, not caring about normality, but going for that 3%. That's straight to the king. This morning in the prayer meeting, there are times when I'm not sure what I, where, what I have to bring is actually going to be received. And I thought today's might be a little bit hard because all I'm telling you is to work hard. And I almost fell over when Mike, Mike Groves gave this word, he says. He felt this was from God. God saying, I love you. I love your praise and worship, your adoration, and I will bless you. But I have a warning for you, Apex. There is work to be done. Work to bring my unity. And as I heard that, I thought, that's exactly what I'm speaking on today. There is work to be done. We're not called to an easy thing. We're called, as I said a few weeks ago, to an impossible thing that can only be done in the Spirit who leads us on paths of righteousness to the King of glory. Will you work with the Holy Spirit to build an underground that leads you to Jesus, to the King? And by extension, others as well. How do we go forward? How do we go from the 40 days of prayer and onward? In the strength and encouragement of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, by the power of his spirit, building paths of righteousness for us for us and others that lead to Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is how we go forward. There is work to do, church. We don't want revival because it's easier. We want revival because it's transforming. But revival never comes before there's a change in here, in us. We must be willing to do the hard work. We must be willing to endure as Christ has. Not in our own strength, not focusing on the endurance, but focusing on the one who has done it all. I want to end by just reading from C.S. Lewis. 
Keep back nothing. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look only to yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. How do we get from the 97% autopilot to the 3% that God is calling us into, which is the extraordinary? We want more ordinary. We don't want more ordinary. We want extraordinary. We want the extraordinary of God. How do we move forward in the strength and encouragement of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit by building paths of righteousness for us and others that lead directly to the King of glory. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray and my heart pleads with you that no one would think that anything I have said today requires works. But in our hearts, we would determine to seek you and you fully and everything else gets thrown in. May you make paths in our hearts and our lives that interconnect with those who are also making paths of righteousness in their lives, that interconnect to more and more until all of a sudden we have made such a network of the underground of God that it connects outside of our community itself. The God of the underground is at work among us. And it is not now that we ask for revival to be easier, but we ask now that we would get on our hands and our knees and that we would come into the presence of God both in the quiet moments and in the corporate moments, both individually and together. And we would say, make in me a clean heart, O God. Make paths of righteousness that lead to the King, that cares not for the normality of life or the normality of culture, but will bring a way that parts through it all and will get straight to the very place where the King sits, in the presence of majesty. This is my prayer for me. This is my prayer for you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.